The Beatles! Hi, everybody. This is John here. This is Paul. George. And Ringo. And we're very happy to be on your program once again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Beatles News Briefs. I'm your host, Steve Marinucci, and on today's show, we have an interview with Jenny Boyd, who is the sister of Patty Boyd, and therefore was the sister-in-law of George Harrison, and she was also the former wife of drummer Mick Fleetwood of Fleetwood Mac. She's written a couple of books, an earlier one called It's Not Only Rock and Roll, where she talked to 75 of the world's musicians, including Clapton and Don Henley and Joni Mitchell and Robbie Shankar and George Harrison. Her new book, Jennifer Juniper, A Journey Beyond the Muse, talks about her life, and that's what we'll be discussing in this interview, which was really delightful to do. Uh, And if you've heard Patty Boyd's voice, you'll notice, probably not surprisingly, that she sounds a lot like her. Anyway, here's my interview with Jenny Boyd. Stick around at the end, and we'll have a little more to say. There's so much that happens in the book. It documents so much. and It's a very honest book, and a lot mm-hmm. of it is very introspective. Why did you do it? Well, it's interesting because it actually started um, probably when I'd left L.A., came to England, and I was working for this treatment center. But meanwhile, um, you know, I just finished a second marriage, and I was um, had well, a couple of years before. And then I was also married to my, my third marriage, and um, and I started jotting things down, memories of things, mm-hmm. trying to make sense of my life, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, and then that grew and grew, and more and more memories came from Africa and things that happened, and you know, sort of certain things that happened in the book, things that I never really forgave myself for, or you know, unfinished business. And so the more I kept writing about it, writing, writing, writing the more I just released it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was pretty therapeutic to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then uh, I, uh, or, you know, and I was having to do this in, in spare time, but then I uh, decided actually, am I brave enough to actually put all this stuff out there? And so I turned it into a very thinly disguised um, fiction. And so I was working on that for a few years. And then I um, things had happened and I'd found my father and different relations. Uh, and, and so then I started turning it into more of a psychological book of um, the effects a, an absent father has on the, the daughter mm-hmm. and the kind, of men, the kind of men she will then choose in her life as she gets older. Mm-hmm. And after that, <laughs> few years later on that one, and then I came to a straight memoir. And so um, this memoir, the book that you've read, is one that bits of memories have been taken out, little bits carried in, enlarged some bits, you know, released others. And, um, and now I'm happy with how it is. Mm-hmm. And so it's been, you know, although it's called Jennifer Juniper, A Journey Beyond the Muse, this book has had its own journey, actually. And um, and I'm very pleased with it as it is now. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. And that was the impression that I got in, in going through it. It was it, it had, you know, twists and turns to it. 
and it, and it was and it, you know it had me wondering actually at a couple of points you know where we where it was going but then i saw you know uh, as it you know as you got into the later stages of the book you you see where where it's going and it's very emotional and and it's a it's a oh. very personal very personal book probably a little more personal than other books of its type is it fair to say that the relationship with mick was not the center of the book i'm talking about for people who don't know mick fleetwood is that the center of the book or 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 no no it's not the center of the book but it's a big part of it because you know you have the innocence of the 60s and that includes the whole swinging 60s um san francisco and india Mm -hmm. and then the next stage really is the sort of decadence of the 70s how it became right and that um that was really hard and i think i learned a lot of lessons in that part uh it was really painful it was you know searching for myself and it went pretty dark and um and then coming out the other side so it plays a huge part in as much as part of the journey that you know all good journeys have a really um a lost a place where one's very lost mm-hmm. and then you refind yourself right. and so it's that it's that sort of d- dark deep stuff that it goes into and it's it's all to do with you know as well as just my relationship with Mick but that was just a reflection of you know how how I was getting through it myself or trying to get through it or my very lostness mm-hmm. in it how, how do you and Patty differ how are you how, how do you come how are you and, and patty different okay we um we have had a lot of similar experiences like we were both models even though i never planned to be a model mm-hmm. but she knew she was going to be a model i never planned to be a model and it just so happened like a little leaf in the wind i kind of fell into it and mm-hmm. had these very nice uh, fashion designers and i became a house model for them and that was my introduction to it. And then more and more of the editors of the Glossy magazine said, well, she should be a photographic model. So I kind of fell into it. Um, so we were both models. We both uh, married musicians. Um, we both had our second marriage as musicians. And it was just this odd thing that we did. It. We were very sort of psychically linked, I think. Mm-hmm. And then as the years went by, we then started taking our own path. And I think it's probably a natural progression. And um, I think I'm much more psychological in my way of thinking and, you know, my training. And I think she's quite different. I love to write, whereas she's much more visual than I am. And photography is her her love. Hmm. Okay. Um, what did you think of uh, George Harrison when you first met him? I thought he was lovely. I thought he was, as I say, I thought thought he was really small much smaller than i imagined he would be but then that's the larger than life you know these kind of people become when when you see them in the newspapers and on television and everything and i thought he was very gentle and um and very generous generous with himself and uh, and a real family man and you knew him you 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 kept in touch with him all the way Probably till he till he died, correct? Is that is pretty that... much too before that? Yeah, just before that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether I was living in LA, you know, I sometimes see him in LA, or he'd send a fax. So 
he was the sort of person, and I think I said in the book, you know, there's so much bits will be taken out, and I can't remember which bits are still in. So I was always really pleased that he was in the world, just knowing he was in the world. He was just a very special person to me. Mm-hmm. And we had a very sort of spiritual link, I think. Um, I, I, early in the book, you talk about your encounters, not only with Mick Fleetwood, but with with a, a lot of other musicians, uh, Peter Green, Rod Stewart, Van Morrison, Eric Clapton. And this was a lot in in the days before they were famous. I mean, did you have any inkling that these guys would go on to to bigger and better things? I'm I'm talking like especially about Peter Green and Rod Stewart and, and Mick. I mean, did you did you think that they were going to be as big as they were? No, no way. No, it's very much in the moment, you know, because one's young then too, mm-hmm. and it's just you know like with Mick when he was in the band The Shames, you know, the first band I knew him in, which was Notting Hill Gate Band, he was just, that's what it was, you know, they did rhythm and blues and they did great music, but it never, one didn't, I didn't think of things like, what would it be like five years from now or ten years from now? It was just great listening to live music and that's what it was about. And the thing is, I loved music. And the thing that my two other sisters and I had in common we all loved music and we all loved to dance. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, how did, did, did you tell a great story in the book of how you inspired George Harrison to write Within You Without You? Would you would you recount that for um, yes. for me, please? Yes. Um, I had, after, you know, during my modeling days, I remember I had what um, I called nowadays I call it was my a sort of spiritual awakening really mm-hmm. um, or an aha moment when I suddenly see everything as cyclical you know like birth death rebirth and um, very much more in tune with the Eastern philosophies and um, and then George and Patty sort of sometime afterwards they said they'd felt the same thing <clears throat> so then it put me on a search I was searching for something because it had had such a profound effect on me. And I wanted to find other people who'd had a similar feeling. There was something about, yeah, it was a sort of spiritual search, awakening. Mm-hmm. And so I remember there was this one guy uh, just off the King's Road in London, in Chelsea, and um, a few of us used to congregate there. And we'd smoke pot and just listen to great music, you know, just the music of that time, Dylan, whatever, Beatles, whatever. And um, and then there would always be some books on his table. One day I was just looking through one of his books called Karma and Rebirth by Christmas Humphreys. And nobody was talking and just listening, listening. And then I saw this line, life goes on you, within you and without you. And I thought, wow, you know, this, this is incredible. There's a sort of double meaning in there. And so I read it a few times. And then I called um, Patty and George and George answered the phone. And I just said, listen to this. Life goes on you, within you, and without you. And then that obviously would inspired the song um, from that. Mm-hmm. Um, you were in India with the, with the Beatles when they did the whole uh, thing with the Maharishi. Um, how did you, what did you think of, of Transcendental Meditation, first of all? Did you, <clears throat> did you like that? And did, do you still, are you still practicing? Okay, so I first got initiated, we all first got initiated when we went to Bangor in Wales, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, we stayed there for a few days, and that's the unfortunate time when their 
manager, Brian Epstein, died. Mm -hmm. um, but we'd all got initiated. We'd all started meditating. And then that's when George asked, you know, would I like to go to India? And obviously he discussed it with Patty beforehand. And, um, and it was a dream come true. But the thing is, it wasn't going to be for another two, three months. So during that time, I was doing the transcendental meditation in the morning and in the afternoon. And it felt great. I really liked it because I'd felt quite lost after I came back from San Francisco in many ways. And, um, and so by the time I got to India, well, I was well into TM meditations, but I never really could feel a real um, connection with Maharishi. Mm -hmm. And I felt a little bit like an imposter, you know, because George would always be reciting things Maharishi had said. And I was always like, Ooh, you know, feeling very doubtful about him, but loving the meditation. So when I went to India and we were all sitting, you know, the foothills of the Himalayas with Maharishi and we got special VIP treatment, um, I always thought Maharishi could tell if he was so clever and holy and everything. He could probably tell that I wasn't a true believer. But I made it okay within myself, knowing that I loved the meditation. And the longer I meditated in India, you know, longer lengths of time, um, the more and more I got out of it. So I was never a huge believer in Maharishi himself. But you, but you did. And and I have to. I just have to add to it. And I do meditate. I still meditate, but I don't do TM meditation. Ah, okay, okay. Um, mm. Did you? Uh, you also mentioned that blow up that the Beatles had that when they suddenly left, when George uh, suddenly packed up because of the accusations against him, that uh, Magic Alex um, was very much a part of. Did you believe those accusations and? Did you also, did you also, um, what did you think of Magic Alex, too? Because there's been a lot of, you know, quite, uh, comments about him through the years about, you know, what he meant to the Beatles. Um, but did you think the accusations against the Maharishi were were real, were, were, were accurate? Well, I was really surprised. I was really shocked because I didn't know all this was going on. Mm -hmm. So the morning that George sort of knocked on my door and said, come on, come on, we're all going off to the Patty and you and me are going to South India. Um, I was saddened, really, because I'd learned to, it had become a way of life there. We'd been there for about two and a half months and meditating and gentleness and, you know, the Himalayas so stunning and beautiful and all this kind of thing. I, I didn't know, I didn't even think about Maharishi, I just felt really sad that it had come to an end. Because by then, I, I didn't really let the Maharishi thing bother me at all. You know, it was like just just meditating was just the best and, and just being with everybody and our way of life there. So I didn't, um, I was more shocked than anything. Um, what was your other bit of the question? Well, I mean, did you, uh, also about Magic Alex, because Magic oh, Alex. Magic, yeah. I, I lived with Magic Alex uh, as I rented a room in his house mm -hmm. in uh, in London for a few months before we went. I don't remember how long it was there. And so he was very sort of sense of possessiveness. So he was good friends with John because he'd made this thing, I think it was called a nothing box. And when John was on LSE, of course, it all seemed really magical to him because lights were flickering, you know, it's just sort of that from that perspective mm -hmm. 
no, I didn't think magic at all. And I thought because the night, the day before we went to India, that night before we went to India, John and Cynthia came round just to come and chat and stuff. And I know Alex was still then trying to get John to go to his guru. I didn't even know that he had a guru, but it was still this sense of competing and wanting and, and possessiveness. So I think when he came, my feeling is that he came to make trouble in some way, you know, to prove that he was right and Maharishi was not the guru that they all thought he was. Mm. You t- there's, there's a couple of other songs that you were instrumental um, um that you were a part of, and and one of course is is uh, Donovan's uh, Jennifer Juniper, and um, you are are obviously, I mean, it, no surprise, very enthusiastic about that. Does that song still have the same effect on you as as it did when you originally heard it, or is it even more special now? I think it's even more. Well, I think the older I've got, as time went on. It was more special, and it was more special in the way, it's lovely, because I always thought this is my song, you know, even if mm-hmm. I'd hear it in, as kind of music in a supermarket in L.A. or, you know, in, in, a, in an elevator or whatever. It, was, it felt like it belonged to me. So it's like I'd been given a song. And the other thing is, what it represents when I hear it is all the innocence of the 60s. Mm-hmm. It really does, you know, and the sort of flower power and the gentleness and, right. you know, fairyland and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's just a little piece of history that was a really sweet time. Without getting too gossipy, you, you guys were, you and Donovan were just friends, correct? Yeah, yeah. there was definitely what I, I'd heard him once call it some courtly love, you <laughs> know, where I know he would have liked it to go a little further, but it didn't. And so we we were friends, and there was a there was a love, you know, there was definitely a love. And I actually loved listening to him sing and play guitar. So when we were in India, you know, we'd go down to the Ganges, and he'd take his guitar, and it was lovely. So we had a really nice friendship. Another song that you mentioned in the book, um, it was George Harrison's song that you called "Beggars in a Gold Mine," which yeah. which in case I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but it's been. Um, out on the collector circuit many, for many years now. It's called uh, with a different title called Dara Dune. Have you? Oh, and right. Are you are you aware of that or? Uh, no. Because no. Uh, was was Beggars in a Gold Mine the actual title? Um, I remember when I interviewed, interviewed George mm-hmm. uh, back in ninety must have been like ninety one or something. Mm-hmm. Um, before my book came out. I think my book came out in 92. Yeah, around about 1991, he was in L.A., and that's when he first started the Travelling Wilburys. And he came round to my place, and we did the interview for my book, which was then called Musicians in Tune. And in that interview, he talks about um, this song that he did, and he said it never got recorded on the album. Uh, And it was about... Uh, he couldn't understand why people had gone all that way for meditation and yet they'd go off to uh, the Taj Mahal or go shopping for eggs in Dehradun. Um And so it was then he told me about that. Another song that, that you were part of that I, I wasn't aware of was Eyed Judy, the uh, Fleetwood, yes. Ma- Fleetwood Mac song. And I, I absolutely, I really love that album. That Kiln House album is, you know, was 
one of my favorites. I always loved Danny Kerwin's stuff. And it was I know. and it was so I sad. Know. I was so I was so sorry to hear that he was having problems and I was sorry to hear that he passed. But talk about July uh, tell me July about Judy. Yeah, talk yeah. about July happened, Judy. Um, we we were all staying at Kiln House mm-hmm. and it was Mick's idea. Mick Mick is always the kind of um instigator just to keep the band going you know because peter had left and he because we were all living in apartments in london he wanted to make sure that this band stayed together so he was very strategic and we rented this house which was an old oast house you know where they'd make beer Mm -hmm. and um and so i was pregnant i was probably about four or five months pregnant and um and they were rehearsing they were rehearsing in this great big room and Danny was always stuck for words. And so one day I was just sitting on my bed with my big tummy and uh, Chris came up to me and said, why don't we, because she knew I wrote, I, I wrote poems. And so she said, why don't we see if we can write a song? We need to come up with a song. So Judy, Judy Wong was one of our very, very, very good friends. Mm-hmm. And so um, I can't remember whether it was her or me that started off with July Judy. And then we together... We put the words together. Then she she did the melody. Okay, but, so um, so but, Judy. But they always put it under. They always put it under Mick's name because their manager was, you know, very. I don't know. He was really um, not very generous in that way towards women. I don't think. Mm-hmm. So I never had my name on that. Same as I didn't have my name on that other poem that Danny sang, uh, which was one of my poems called "The uh, Purple Dancer," and that went on the B side of one of the Fleetwood Mac. Um, Singles. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, when you talk about Chris, obviously you're talking about Christine McVie, correct? Yeah. 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 A- another interesting part of the book: you were with Cynthia the day she walked in on John and Yoko. At Tel- oh my goodness! Yes, that was because what happened that Donovan had asked me when we got back from India, would I like to go to Greece with him? Mm-hmm. And um, and so Alex said that he wanted to go along too. And then Cynthia, knowing that this plan was afoot, said to me before we got back to England that she would really like to go with her. And so, um, and she, I know she knew things weren't, because she and I would have chats together as we'd walk along in the ashram. And, you know, I knew she was upset with John that things weren't going very well. And she just wanted to kind of get away. And, um, and so we all were in Greece together. And I've got a photograph in the book of us all there. And, uh, and then when we got back, Alex and I got took her back and opened the door, and there was John, and there was um, Yoko. And uh, poor Cynthia, she sort of went into the kitchen, and there was a, like a chaise long in the kitchen, and John was just lying there. I can't remember what happened to Yoko. She must have left then. Mm-hmm. And John was, you know, like a naughty little boy who'd been caught out, but didn't really mind. So that was it. So Cynthia came to stay with me. Then she went to go and stay with other people. And, um, you know, she was really just uh, bereft. Uh-huh. Did you have contact with Yoko after that day? or? Did... Um, I came across John and Yoko at some, in those days, at some, I'm not sure what it was. It was some electronic thing. Maybe it was set up by Magic Alex mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, they both just said hello, both hand in hand. And I've come across her, and of course, she came to when we went to George's memorial service um, in Fri- at Fry Park, where where he lived. Right. Uh, Yoko Yoko was there, so you just say hello, you know. Okay. But it was never something 
be that I got to know or chatty or, you know, anything okay. with. Somebody else you mentioned a lot in the book is Ravi Shankar. Mm-hmm. He was he was a very positive person. You you t- you talk about that in the book. Um, are you were you a big fan of his music? Did you like Did you like his? I music? loved his music. I loved his music. I loved uh, him, and Ali Akbar Khan was another one. And um, I would listen to them to them a lot when I was in San Francisco, and then when I came back. And so it was lovely to actually meet him when we came back from from India. But I'm wondering if I might have met him a little bit before, because I remember he did um, in somebody's house in Chelsea, um, he did a, a performance and it was literally just for their friends. And I went and Mick, Mick and I went. And then I remember Patty and George were there and a few other people. So I think I'd met him for the first time there. And then met him again when we came to see him in South India. Mm-hmm. We landed in Madras. And I thought he was wonderful. I thought he was wonderful and his whole troop. There was something about him that was so positive, always laughing, but um, but then also having a serious side to him. Uh, he was I was hugely in awe of him. So he was just brilliant. Our, uh, the junior college I went to had him... Um, do a concert. This was uh, in the early 70s. And mm-hmm. he played, I think he played like three or four hours. I mean, he played a long time. Uh, I remember playing, I remember he played a long, long time. And by the time it was over, a lot of people had left, but there was no what you would call security. And we were able to go out and talk to him just very briefly. He was, uh, and Alaraka was with him. Too. Oh, and I thought he was lovely. They both were. So sweet, and of course I saw them at the Monterey Pop Festival. Oh, you were you were at that you were at that that performance. Yeah. That performance yeah. was, is amazing because of the way he he built it up, and at the end he you know he uh, he came to a like a climax, and it's it's one of his really one of his best performances that I that I've yeah. heard on record. It's really wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. And I seem to remember it was sort of raining a bit up until that point, and then as soon as he got on stage, the rain stopped. Ah, uh, uh, that's... that's uh, Yeah, yeah. The book ends with you linking up with your father, and that's really, you know, a positive thing. I mean, is that something that Patty also had to experience, too? Uh-huh. No, she never wanted to get in touch with him. She didn't have the desire that I did, so I started quite a few years ago. Uh, you know, a few years before I actually met up with him and mm-hmm. writing letters and actually being amazed that he replied and it was all in secret because we were secrets. And um, and I just kept on going with it. And Patty kept saying, I don't know why you bother. He's just an empty shell. But I believed that he was more than an empty shell, even though he couldn't remember who I was as a child in Africa, which was hard and, you know, had kind of come on to me. And that was really weird. And I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to see him anymore. But then I, I'd have a dream about him and then write to him and say, you have to tell me who you are or I, I can't see you anymore or I, you know, I, I need to know. So that when he started writing and telling me about his life, where he was born, because I didn't know any of this stuff and what he went through. And then, uh, and then he told me about the accident that he had um, as a as a bomber pilot in the Second World War, 
and how he only just survived, but he survived with very severe burns. And, um, and I think there was something about once he started writing, and it took him quite a while, you know, a few months just to do four double-sided pages. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I thought, okay, well, he's obviously not going to say when I was born or when we all moved to Africa. But then I left it, and that was fine, and I gave copies to my brothers and my sisters. And, um, and then about a year or so later, he called me to say, I can't stop writing. You know, I've written more. And he wanted me to go and see him and he'd written things and he'd found pictures and uh, all sorts of these amazing things to do with his accident and uh, his life. And I believe that by asking him to write, it actually um, made these frozen memories, actually stored these frozen memories. Mm -hmm. And he started to then remember me and then connect. And, but he didn't have that same thing with Patty or Colin because they hadn't gone that extra mile trying to say, trying to see who this person was and really believe there was somebody in there because mm-hmm. it was important to me. You said he came on to me. I actually write about it in the book. And I say, you know, when my first meeting with him after all these years, um, and it was just painful because he didn't talk and I had to keep trying to talk and do you remember me? No, I don't. Do you okay. have any photographs or any of that? And then when I went into the kitchen to start washing up, he then came behind me and put his arms around me from behind and pushed me towards him. Like, mm. horrible, you know, not the sort of thing a father would do. And, um, and, then, uh, and then I knew I had to stay the night there and in the same room as him, which was horrendous. But you see, I didn't have a voice in those days. I didn't have a voice to say, this is horrible. I'm driving home, uh, you know, because I've never been in this experience before. I'd been so excited about to meet my father, who I'd been looking for in different guises, you know, right. for many years. And then when he said goodnight, it was like a kiss on the lips, you know, and then everything, then if ever I'd see him at uh, my sister's or anything, he would sort of um, give me a hug and then it would be the old grope on the bum, <laughs> sort of thing, but it was uh. bloodly. Um, so it was like, it was sort of not, not cool and it wasn't good. And then um, I actually ended up by telling the woman friend he was with, this is what he's doing. And she then said, well, he does that to all my friends. And um, from now on, he will not be doing it again. And he stopped. So once he stopped all that, um, then he became more into remembering things and able to write to me and connect. And, uh, you know, so I could have easily just been put off him for, for the rest of my life and not even bother, let him die, da-da-da. But I didn't because once he stopped all that bad behavior, and it, the thing is, he obviously had post-traumatic stress disorder when we were in Africa and after his very bad plane crash. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was never treated in those days. And so it came out in different ways, I think. You know, all this bottled-up stuff. Okay. What kind of a relationship do you have with Mick Fleetwood now? Well, I saw him last night. And he came to my book launch, and that was just lovely. And um, in London, and um, very caring, just you know, so proud of him because he'd put together this fantastic um, concert at the London Palladium the night before, which I went to, where he had the main band that he was playing with, um, and then lots of different guests, well-known musicians, guests. And it was just 
brilliant. Was that, is that the thing? That together. Is that the thing for Peter Green? Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. Mm. Was did Peter did Peter show up and play? No, I don't know whether Peter was even there. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're but it was great because actually I did bump into backstage. I bumped into Jeremy Spencer, you know, and hadn't seen him for fifty years. Wow! Um, so that was pretty cool, and all sorts of you know different musicians and stuff. It was it was really really wonderful. Really, I was really proud of him. Did uh, John McVie and and Christine show up too? Christine did, but not John. John stayed in L.A. Chris sang a couple of songs, and each musician would come along as guest, and they would sing a couple of songs. Um, you know, it, it was it was great. It was. It sounds like it was. It would have been great. You've written this book, and the title, the full title of the book is Jennifer Juniper: mm-hmm. A Journey Beyond the Muse. And then the first book is. Was uh, the first book was um, Musicians in Tune, okay. and that came out uh, in uh, the States and in Japan, mm-hmm. and then it didn't come out in England for many years later. Probably came out about five years ago, mm-hmm. and um, and so I changed the cover, changed the title, did a little bit of editing in it, and um, so that's uh, it's not only rock and roll. How's Patty doing these days? And and have you seen her lately? Uh, uh, she has a book that's coming out. It was meant to come out as a photographic book, but it's probably more like a photographic memoir. She's fine. I think, you know, she'd been working on uh, all her, finding all her photographs and putting that book together with help. Um, yeah, so she, that's what she's doing. She lives in London, and then she's got a, a cottage in, in uh, West Sussex. I met her when she came out to San Francisco uh, with the George Harrison photo exhibit what did happen during that engagement was she announced she was engaged she was getting married again oh right Uh, to rod right right in fact he was he was there she was she was we talked we we did an interview and uh it was a very nice interview it was funny that uh she uh we we talked about the last waltz because i didn't even know she was there and she Uh she talked about being there and i had told and i told her that they had torn Winterland down, which was where the last waltz was, and she she wasn't she was were you were you there too? Yeah, I went to Winterland when did, I lived there in '67. Did you? Oh, did you go to did you go to the last waltz? No. Oh, no, but no. you went to Winterland a, a bunch of other times. Winterland, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I and, we did uh, we the we Fillmore did West, obviously. We did too. Yeah, I did too. I we saw many, 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 many shows. At Winterland, yeah. I only saw one at, at Fillmore, and actually, it was Fleetwood Mac. It was, it was the last. I think it was the last time they played um, with Jeremy Spencer because I believe it was on after they left San Francisco. They went to Fresno and then to L.A. And it was in L.A., according to your book, that he left. But he was, yeah. but he did. I remember because that was, believe it or not, that was the first. I think that was one of the first concerts I ever went to, when, especially one of the first late night shows, because I was I was young then. And I remember Jeremy came out in the Gold LeMay jacket and did the Elvis. Oh yeah. And did the Elvis medley. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I don't remember if um, Christine was part of the group, but I do remember. I do remember the rest of the group. And you, do you know who was on that group on that bill? 
a group called Clover with Huey Lewis. Do you know, you know, Huey Lewis? And oh, Lewis? yeah, Huey Lewis, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Huey Lewis was was part of it. And also Tom Rush, I think, was one, the other act on the... But I, but right. uh, but that was a that was a very that was a, a I I'll never forget seeing Jeremy. I think he Jeremy came out. I think it was about two o'clock in the morning with the with the gold lame jacket, and yeah. uh, it was it was amazing because uh, I remember reading about it and I, we were wondering if he was going to do it and he did. And then to hear after he left, or to hear a few days later that he had left the group was. A shot, really a surprise. Uh, I'm, gl- yeah. I'm glad he's. I'm glad he's uh, back. To, I guess back together, or you know, uh, I know he's. I I actually have one of his later albums, and I'm glad he's performing. You know that kind of stuff again because he was great in those. Yeah, guys. he's great, and he did a great couple of numbers at, at the um, Peter Green celebration. Um, and he's just, you know, he's still just a great slide guitarist, and he's still got the chops and. It was um, it was really fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. Anyway, Jenny, that's that's about all I have to say. But uh, thank you for doing this. This has been this, it's been great to talk to you. Um, and um, best of luck with the with the book. Um, it's available on Amazon and everywhere, everywhere people can get it. And it'll be at yeah, the and, and it'll be at the fest. You'll be selling them at the fest. Um. Which I am fortunately I'm not going to be at, but um, uh, but right. uh, but um, best of luck there and uh, take care and and uh, thanks again. Well, thank you so much, and I really enjoyed this. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much, <laughs> okay. Jenny. You take care. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. What do you think of them coming in and, and then screaming? What? Well, they paid the money, so they can scream, they can't they? Want. I mean, if they hadn't paid and they were screaming, it'd be a liberty, wouldn't it? <laughs> we sort of pick up a newspaper and read about the Beatles, and I just read about them, uh, you know, as though I'm not one of them, sort of thing. I just read, oh, the Beatles are doing good. <laughs> we never think of it as a phenomenon or any phenomenon. Had a few, you see. Yeah, we just keep going. It, to me, it's just like in the old days when we were playing for sort of couple of dollars a night you know just because we get more money we still play the same yeah well we're still basically the same it's just that we can afford things but now as we got the money there's not as many things that we can, can think of that we want to buy i could think of hundreds of things when i didn't have any money but now you know i don't thank you to jenny boyd for that interview you can find us on facebook in our beatles news and information group and you can also check out our that's what i want beatles store page if you haven't joined our Beatles News and Information Group, please do. We post all the information about our shows and other things, too. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever podcasts are available, and we're also on YouTube. Thanks again for listening. Tell your f- friends. Please subscribe if you don't subscribe already. That's it for today. Until next time, this is Steve Marinucci saying... Be seeing you. that one
Market fab.